So we are back to our verse-by-verse series through the book of Acts. Today we're starting chapter 16, so we're a little more than halfway, we're making progress, and we're just going to jump right in today. Here's verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. So this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. This time Paul has Silas with him instead of Barnabas. You know, as we read a couple weeks ago in, in chapter 15, unfortunately, Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement about whether or not to take John Mark with them. So on this second missionary journey, um, Paul has Silas instead. Now let's take a look at the map for this second journey. This, this is big. This is big compared to the first journey. We'll look at that in a second. So they start again. I think I actually have a laser. Yeah. They start in Antioch over here on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, eastern side of the sea. Antioch is the largest Gentile church at this time, and it has served as a home base for for Paul's missionary journeys. They've been supporting him on this. This is where the Holy Spirit spoke clearly and set apart Paul and Barnabas for this ministry in the church at Antioch. But this time, Paul and Silas, they set off from Antioch by land. Instead of going to the sea, uh, they go north, west, over the Taurus Mountains, Uh, So this is a serious journey. They are not messing around. This time they do go through the mountains, which is a difficult trek. And this may have also been a factor in why Paul did not want to bring John Mark along. Maybe Paul knew the whole time they wanted to go north through the mountains, and he wasn't sure if John Mark could make it because last time John Mark ditched them in Perga. And also, as you look at the map for this journey, like this is a massive route. This is a much bigger undertaking than their first journey. So I just want to show you a comparison of the first journey. I mean, that was a significant journey, but then compare it to the second journey. They are covering so much more land. They're making so many more stops. This is a really ambitious missionary trek here. Anyway, so Paul and Silas are beginning their second journey by revisiting the churches in Lystra and Derby and Iconium They established these churches on their first time around. And their first priority on this trip is to strengthen the churches they had already established. They didn't want to just leave these churches in the dust, leave them be. They wanted to disciple them and resource them. And in Lystra, they meet Timothy. And we know Timothy. If you remember, last time Paul was in Lystra, Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. They thought he was dead. But then he just stood up. So he was either brought back from the dead or he was miraculously preserved from death. Either way, God spared his life. And Paul just stands up and goes right back into the city like a boss. I mean, he had no fear, just goes right back in. He wasn't afraid. And it's possible, it's likely that Timothy was a witness to this or heard about this. Timothy may have been inspired by Paul's miracles, his boldness, his fearlessness, And also Paul's humility. This may have inspired Timothy. And Timothy will later become a very important disciple of Paul's. Timothy will serve as a leader in the early church, especially in Ephesus. He becomes kind of the main guy over the churches in Ephesus. Paul would write two letters, at least two letters to Timothy, which are preserved in the New Testament, 1 and 2 Timothy. 
And these letters are scripture for us today. So let's read on. Verse 2. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. They're talking about Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Wait, what? Timothy was circumcised? I mean, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we spent a lot of time talking about this issue of circumcision and, and the Jerusalem council that said, no, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised or follow the law. They just need to do these four things that we ask. And, but yet Timothy is circumcised anyway. Why? Why? Well, it actually says right here in the text, because of the Jews. For the sake of the Jews who lived in that area. So this was not about salvation or theology. This was just a practical decision, a sacrifice that Timothy was making for the sake of the Jews so that there would be no obstacles in spreading the gospel among these Jewish people. You know, and it's not necessarily clear from the text here. It just says Paul circumcised him because of the Jews. Uh, kind of blunt, but I assume that Timothy was fully compliant in this. I highly doubt that Paul and Silas had to tie him down and perform this painful operation on him. You know, I think it's safe to assume that Timothy was voluntarily receiving this procedure for the sake of the gospel. It was for the mission. And there are some people who have questioned, you know, like, was, was Paul just caving to Jewish peer pressure here? Is this a moment of weakness for Paul? Well, the answer to that is no, because Paul would take on another disciple later down the line named Titus. And in that situation, simply because Titus was also an uncircumcised Gentile, but simply because of peer pressure in that situation with Titus, Paul refused to circumcise him and said, no, we need to make a point here that circumcision is not required for salvation. So we, we can safely conclude that for Timothy, it was a practical decision for the sake of the gospel. With Titus, it was actually about standing up for true, sound doctrine. It had to do with the Judaizers. So you can read about all that in the letter to the Galatians. And there's a bit of nuance in this, right? This, there's an underlying principle that the gospel takes priority. And we are talking about non-essential issues here non-essential issues that could potentially divide or become an obstacle for the gospel. And that's what Paul teaches us, is that whatever advances the cause of the gospel, if it's a non-essential issue, we actually find him writing about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now, this passage can sometimes cause confusion for people. 
Here's what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that we have permission to disobey God's word. He's not saying that we are allowed to compromise ourselves morally for the sake of the gospel. He did not say, to win the drunks, I became like a drunk. Nope. He did not say, to win the sexually immoral, I became sexually immoral. Nope, he did not say that. So there's this principle here of of becoming all things to all people. This is about non-essentials. This is about cultural differences, personal preferences. Paul's not talking about abandoning major aspects of our faith for the sake of the gospel. So let me just give a few examples here, which I think will help clear this up. So Pastor Darrell actually told me this story years ago. He said he got together with some other pastors years ago and some other church leaders, and they wanted to go to Panama City Beach for an outreach. There was some kind of big Hootenanny Beach event going on, spring break, I think. Thousands of people at the beach, and, and they're like, let's go to the beach and talk to people about Jesus. And they were so excited, and they thought this would be a good thing, like, yeah, we're going to you know, preach the gospel in Panama City Beach. And when they got there, they realized that this was like the most sinful place they could have found themselves in. It was anything but family-friendly. It was just raucous and raunchy and debaucherous. There were a lot of drunk people. There were a lot of people with little or no clothing on running around the beach. So this was not a 1 Corinthians chapter 9 type of situation. This group of pastors and evangelists were not thinking, we need to become like the spring breakers so that we can win the spring breakers. No, it was the opposite. They felt a strong conviction in their spirit, and they all agreed, we need to get out of here right now. We should never put ourselves in a situation where we may be tempted to sin, where God is not being honored. Well, let me give you another example as well. So actually, just last Wednesday, we had a big faculty brunch at Catholic High where I've been working uh, three days a week. I got one more month. I'm almost there. Yeah, and uh, woohoo. And so this was the big send-off for all the faculty, all the teachers at the school. And I was surprised because Sister Kirsten asked me to close the brunch in prayer. And she's never asked me to do that. <laughs> you know, she knows I'm a Protestant pastor, uh, so there's, there's kind of some theological differences there, of course. Uh, so this is new. She asked me to close in prayer, and, and I have a, a choice here. I can choose to pray the way that I always pray, you know, like Protestants do. We just start praying. Uh, or since I'm in a room full of devout Catholics, I could pray like the Catholics do. And before Catholics pray, they sign the cross. You've probably seen it. They say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then they start praying. And then when they end their prayer, they sign the cross again. They say, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. And that's what I did. You know, rather than stand before all these people and just stubbornly pray like a Protestant, I wanted to show honor to them. I wanted to honor their traditions, their preferences. And this is a non-essential, right? Like, I'm not talking about salvation theology or communion or something like that. This is such a small thing. This school has honored me. They've given me a job, which has actually allowed Biz and I to be here at all. They've paid the majority of our bills for five years, the Catholic Diocese, so I'm really thankful for that. And I was honored by being asked to pray, so I wanted to honor them in return by praying in the traditional way that they pray, and I signed the cross before I prayed. Now, am I going to convert to Catholicism? No. Am I going to adopt Catholic theology? No. I bet some of you might have a problem with that. Uh, Am I going to make signing the cross a regular part of my prayer life? No, I'm not. 
You know, it's kind of a cool thing. But, you know, it's so non-essential. I can lay down my preferences for a moment and pray in a slightly different way to honor these Catholic brothers and sisters that I've been working alongside for years. I'm not compromising my beliefs or my morals. You know, and in fact, I've done some research on this. Like, there's nothing wrong with signing the cross. It's as a, f- I, am, I am a firmly evangelical Protestant pastor, so don't get me wrong there. But I can, and I can tell you, there are several things with Catholic theology that, that I don't agree with. Uh, but signing the cross is not something that I'm going to lose any sleep over. You know, it's not witchcraft. You're not summoning demons. Uh, it is the sign of the cross of Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's a cross. Like, what's wrong with a cross? You know, it's also an affirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is orthodox Christian stuff. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but the sign of the cross is this practice that goes all the way back to the second century. That is really early. We're talking early Christianity, only one or two generations after the apostles and the disciples died. This tradition was formed and people were praying with the sign of the cross. That far back, so many respected early church fathers that the Protestant church you know, holds dear, like Irenaeus, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, John Chrysostom, Augustine. It's very likely that these early church fathers also signed the cross when they prayed. And it wasn't really until the Protestant Reformation that Protestants gave up this practice of signing the cross. You know, there was kind of a stripping away of anything that, that had Catholic identity to it, um, including signing of the cross. And I get it. You know, and I'm not going to encourage all of you to start signing the cross or whatever. It's such a small thing, but... Um, Protestant Reformation was kind of a dark time. You know, it was a really dark chapter in, in church history. And I, and I think Paul and the apostles would be horrified to hear about everything that happened from 1500 to 1700. I mean, there were wars. Like, people died. Anyway, I'm way off track. Let's get back to Acts chapter 16. Verse 4. As they traveled from town to town, They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Remember, this was from the council in Jerusalem, these four things that they were asking the Gentiles to do. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. The Judaizers were saying that these new Gentile Christians had to be circumcised and they had to follow the law of Moses, but this council in Jerusalem decided, no, we are saved by grace through faith. They don't have to follow the law. They don't have to be circumcised. But we do ask them to do these four things, to abstain from sexual immorality and for the sake of unity among Jewish Christians. Like here's another 1 Corinthians chapter 9 example. For the sake of unity with their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, they were also to abstain from consuming blood, meat sacrificed to idols, and meat from strangled animals. This would have come as a huge relief to Gentile Christians because the law of Moses in its, in its entirety is a heavy burden. That is a heavy burden. Let's read on. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Hmm. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I find this very interesting. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching in Asia Minor. And that's what they mean by when they mention Asia. It's not the Far East continent. They're talking about Asia Minor. I'll show you on a map. This is really the western region of modern-day Turkey. That's Asia Minor. It's also called Anatolia. So the Holy Spirit prevented Paul and the gang from preaching in Asia Minor. It says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter Bithynia. I just find that so fascinating. You know, also, it's less common in Scripture, but there are times when the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of Christ. You know, we often just assume like, oh, Holy Spirit, that's the Spirit of God the Father. But in the Gospels, Jesus did say, he said, I am sending you the Holy Spirit as the Father promised. So it's a very Trinitarian understanding. You know, Jesus also said, I and the Father are one. And the doctrine of the Trinity can be very confusing. We're not going to get too deep into it. But, you know, this is just more evidence that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that, that these names, these revelations of God are almost used synonymously at times in Scripture. So here we have a clear example of Paul and the gang being directed by the Holy Spirit. They are being led by the Holy Spirit. And in this case, they were directed not to do something, something that would otherwise, we would assume, is a good thing, right? Oh, preaching the gospel in Asia Minor, that sounds pretty good. But the Holy Spirit said no. God had other plans. Maybe it wasn't the right time, Maybe Paul, Silas, and Timothy weren't the right people for the job. You know, it doesn't say exactly how Paul and company uh, received this directive from the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was a dream or they received a prophetic word from someone or, or maybe they could just sense in their spirits that still small voice of God. But it does say that Paul had a vision while they were in Troas which sent them to Macedonia. So there's, there may be times in our lives where we are fully prepared to do something that we are called to do. You know, maybe go do a gospel outreach at Panama City Beach in spring break. <laughs> but just like Paul and his crew, there may be times where God says no to something that we think is like, well, what are we talking about, Lord? This is such a good thing that I want to do. This is according to your word. Why are you telling me no? There may be times where God says no, even when we think we're on the, on the right path. So it's important for us to listen at all times for, the, for the, the voice of the Holy Spirit. It is way more important for us to do the will of God than to do what we think is the will of God. That should be our highest priority at all times, is to do the will of the Father, which can sometimes be a lot different than we expect. Also, before we move on, I want to point out in verse 10, I think it's up here. Yes, verse 10 the language changes from third-person plural to first-person plural. In verse 8, it says, they passed by Mysia. And in verse 10, it says, we, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. So important narrative shift here. And this is where most scholars agree that this is where Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, this is where Luke joined Paul and the gang. Luke was a physician, 
Uh, so he may have come along to help with medical care at the churches they were visiting or, or even just provide medical care for Paul and his company. And some scholars even suggest that, that Luke was the reason that God didn't want Paul to spend time in Asia Minor because there was this divine appointment that God had for Paul to meet up with Luke so that Luke could take on this undertaking of writing the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Anyway, we're just speculating a little bit, but let's read on in in verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Okay, let's check in with our map. They've been doing a lot of traveling, lots of traveling. So here is the region of Galatia, and here is Asia Minor. And you can see from Iconium, they just skipped over all of this stuff. There's no record of any major stops in their journey until they get to Troas, which is where Paul has the vision of the man from Macedonia. And then they go up to Samothrace, this little island, Neapolis and Philippi. And you maybe remember Philippi. There is a book in the New Testament. Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians. So this is a significant stop. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Lydia would become an important leader in the Philippian church. She was a wealthy business owner. She sold purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God or a God-fearer, as they called them, which were Gentiles that believed in the one true God of Israel. They hadn't converted to uh, Judaism, but they believed in the one true God. They were, she was a worshiper of God. And she not only received Christ and was baptized, but she was able to convince her whole household as well to receive Christ and to be baptized. And it's not clear whether or not Lydia had a husband or not. And through a first century lens, it's very odd that there's no male mentioned here. Scandalous even because the first century Roman society was this very male-centric society, you know, especially in historical accounts like this. Luke was trying to write an orderly account in the first century. So, Most scholars conclude that Lydia was either a widow or just she never married. She was single. And even emphasizing this story of of the conversion of a wealthy, independent woman, this would have been kind of controversial in the first century. A lot of people would have been like, where's her husband? Where's the man? Because that's what the culture was all about back then. It was very male-centric. But Lydia's role in the Church of Philippi, however controversial, it was important She used her wealth and her home for the church. And we'll read later in this chapter, in the coming weeks, that her home became a meeting place 
for this fledgling Philippian church that Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke were starting to build. So this can be confusing because we might picture like homes that we have today, even nice homes, you know, maybe like 1,500 square feet, a couple stories. You can't imagine cramming much more than maybe 20, 25 people in a living room and it would be tight. Uh, but it was common back in the first century for wealthy merchants to, to own large tracts of land with very large houses, uh, very large homes, usually with large covered courtyards. Many of these wealthy uh, merchants had large covered courtyards where people could gather and they could throw parties and they could have meetings and things. And so some of these homes of wealthy merchants in the first century, they could host well over 100, 150 people. So um, talk about home church. That's big time. So we're going to stop there today. Next week gets really exciting. Paul and Silas get thrown in jail. Woohoo! But you know, it's the book of Acts, so you know it's going to get good. Uh, but let me just pray for us before we go today.